Hey folks, uh, welcome to The Peaceful Way, where we work towards a less violent and more peaceful world. I'm here with the, uh, with the great David Gornoski and his, uh, his sultry baritone voice. <laughs> um, and he is here to discuss, we're going to talk about quite a few things, but actually, first of all, uh, I, I just want to say uh, David introduced me to some of the ideas of Rene Girard uh, that I actually had never heard before. A couple of years ago, I heard him on a podcast. So uh, I, I'm sort of like indebted to him for some of my intellectual development on these ideas, but, and just understanding the world. But uh, yeah, uh, in this episode, we're going to sort of talk about a lot of current events in a, uh, through a mimetic lens or a Girardian lens. And uh, if you're not super familiar with Rene Girard or his ideas, I would recommend um, going to one of my first episodes. I do kind of a primer. And David also has a, uh, a podcast called Things Hidden. And he does a really good job of uh, sort of um, elaborating on the world in, in sort of that Girardian understanding. And if you go to his really early, is it your first episode, David? You kind of have like a, a primer on Girard. Yeah, I kind of dive into, I kind of dive in feet, you know, first in with uh, the talking about the uh, the the uh, betrayal of Jesus and what was happening on the Passion Night. But yeah, it's kind of uh, designed to be a. a, a kind of an introduction where you yeah. just dive in and, and go into it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, I would say if anyone's sort of like unfamiliar with this, go back and uh, listen to some primers. There's even some great YouTube videos uh, just so you can understand the, the concepts that we're sort of uh, talking about and, uh, and kind of uh, uh, follow us uh, on that. And uh, on that note, uh, David, uh, do you, where else can, uh, just before we get into this, where can people reach you um, and what other platforms are you on? Just plug all your is stuff. It, by the way, is this going to be video on YouTube too? Um, I'm not sure or yet. Audio. Yeah. <laughs> I'm th audio for sure. Uh, we'll see yeah. about YouTube. <laughs> well, I am I, on YouTube, David Gronoski, if you want to subscribe to my uh, work there. And then I have a radio program on FM and AM stations, um, uh, self-syndicating that uh, city by city across America. Um, the program on radio is called A Neighbor's Choice. And that's kind of the overarching uh, name of my media group, A Neighbor's Choice. Okay. My website's aneighborschoice.com. Then the podcast is called Things Hidden, which is more of a deeper dive into anthropology and history. But both of those programs, you can find them on my podcast. Uh, just search for the word David Gronoski, those names, that name, and you'll find it on most all the major platforms. Uh, Jordan, you've been uh, one of the folks encouraging me to post more of my radio shows on the podcast platform too. So yeah, thanks yeah. for encouraging me. Because a lot of those episodes I did only on radio. And uh, I started off doing podcasts only. Then I did radio, got into broadcast radio, and then I'm trying to digitally integrate everything back into a seamless uh, picture again. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, and, and again, I think uh, your radio show is great and also your podcast, and I highly recommend people go over <clears throat> and check that out. And even even follow David on uh, social media. He always has uh, great uh, great little thoughts that he posts about uh, current events and stuff. So, I, But I'm I not would... active on Twitter. I, I do have a lurker account, but I, I okay. just find Twitter <laughs> to be a disgusting cesspool. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll get into Twitter. We'll talk about uh, Twitter as well. It's uh, it it's so it's a rough place out there. That Twitter world, the Twitterverse. Um, I just my problem is I don't like the idea of leveraging your media voice to a bunch of people who hate truth <laughs> on every level that truth you know works in. You know? For sure, for sure. Yeah, I hear you. It's um, not a good business strategy from my perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I this do. This is water. This is water, folks. This is I'm not <laughs> drinking a giant beer on the show. Um, uh, yeah, Twitter can definitely be a cesspool. Um, and Facebook. I mean, Facebook has its own problems, but at least you can you get a a bit of a a wider array of uh, discussion there, and a little bit less of the group think. You kind of get a much more um, diverse opinion field of opinion. So. Uh, it's not that there isn't the kind of mobbing that happens on Twitter, but it is it is a little at least it's tolerable <laughs> if that makes sense. So yeah, it's a little more uh, more uh, personal touch on yeah. Facebook. Yeah, and you can actually have like discussions as well, whereas Twitter you're kind of limited with what you can actually say. I'm just amazed at how these people in Silicon Valley that moderate the content on both Facebook and Twitter and all these platforms, YouTube, they can be wrong on everything <laughs> that is possible to be wrong about. They're wrong about nutrition science. They're wrong about physics. They're <laughs> wrong about politics. They're wrong about economics. They're wrong about world affairs. They're wrong about ethics. They're wrong about religion. I mean, how many times can you be wrong on everything that matters and not only be wrong about it, but be viciously censorous <laughs> Yeah, or censorious yeah. or whatever sure. about anybody who deviates from their stupid wrong thing. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. It is a, it is amazing. It's amazing. And they're very incentivized to uh, com- continue being wrong because there's a, there's, there's a reality that they sort of wish uh, was the case. And then there's real reality and they keep trying to create this unreality uh and they, in order to do that, for the people who are free thinkers and, and critical thinkers, you have to sort of push everyone outside who doesn't, you know, go along with the unreality. So it creates a really uh, kind of sick system, if you will, on, on how on intellectual development and thought. Uh, but yeah, it, and on that note, um, let's get right into it. Uh, so I wanted to ask you a few things. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things I wanted to do, you're a guy in media. Uh, you, do, you do terrestrial radio and podcasting. And you also, you also write for a number of publications. Uh, so what is like your view on the current state of media? And this isn't to say all media, but the, let's say even 75% of it where it is, it just seems to me to be giving us uh, incorrect, false information, or they're they're very, very slow to get the right information, and they're very, very quick to give the wrong information. What do you think is like causing this, and 
is there like some sort of phenomenon that I'm not catching here because it really seems, and I even go back to like, say, uh, the Iraq war and weapons of mass destruction, right? And, and things like that, where the media was so unbelievably wrong. And even I was like a, I was like a teenager when that was all happening. And even I could like sort of, I started to pick up the inconsistencies, how the story would change and nobody would, uh, nobody would talk about how the story would change. And one minute the, the media is like, loving George W. Bush for his actions. And then a few months later, everyone, they're all slamming him when it comes election time, right? So uh, what is like, what is your perspective on this sort of like uh, what they're doing, how they're misrepresenting information? Do you think there's like a reason why they're doing that? Well, the media, first of all, in the true sense, is just what human beings are. We are media. We are mediators, right? So right. we mediate between other people. Every one of us is a part of the media, whether we like it or not. Every time you do something, you know, that communicates something to another human, whether nonverbal or verbal, you are a part of media. You're mediating reality for somebody else. Uh, so that's the first step, is that there's no special class of media. Now, over history, uh, there is, you know, a scribal, you know, class or caste that takes it upon itself to be the sacred bearers of the truth for the priests, the high priests of a society. The high priests are basically, there's no distinction in much of history between religion and uh, politics. So the high priests are also intertwined with the high chief. And those high priests are the ones who occupy the positions of power in society and government and its crony organizations that are allied with it. And they, and those high priests are the ones who are in charge of keeping society unified, pacified, united, uh, right. and uh, in a state of uh, order. And the way they do that is by uh, sacrificial violence, by using their, their monopoly on the use of initiative violence, initiatory violence, or aggressive violence. Uh, they are the ones who have the exclusive claim to uh, mediating violence and vengeance, for that matter. Um, and when they do employ those methods, it's up to the so-called media class to interpret their divine kind of uh, decisions yeah. to the to the to the population. And so we've created this situation where we believe that there's a media out there and we're not media, but because of technology radically decentralizing that power because everybody has access to HD equipped smartphones and high speed internet cellular or Wi-Fi or what have you and everyone has access to social media platforms and you can live stream a police uh, altercation with a peaceful person or you can live stream a corrupt politician or audio record their microphone saying something evil or you can videotape anything anywhere around the world, that power is going to continue to melt away back into the hands of the population for good or ill. There's a lot of ill with that, but there's also a lot of good potential if uh, those who are talented and who are morally uh, grounded in uh, ethics and uh, beauty and personhood, if those folks step up to the plate and actually become the 
the adults in the room that shape the media conversation in the direction towards peace, then you yeah. can have a chance at, at, at changing the dynamic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, uh, that's a very good way of putting it is there they're almost uh, behaving as a as a priestly caste who is uh, they're sort of the like you said the mediators between the people and the gods you know and they're and uh, they get to decide what the right course of action is and what the truth is and uh, anyone who deviates from that is but notice of, notice that whatever media it is they're always usually in favor of more and more authoritarianism and violence yes. Uh, so, you know, Dr. Fauci was saying recently that, you know, maybe we'll have to have, uh, uh, papers showing that we're, we're immune to the virus, yeah. even though he doesn't know whether we can get re, uh, reinfected or not. They don't even know, but yeah. they float these things out and the media glorifies Fauci as, oh my goodness, what an right. amazing God, what a hero, what a, yeah. what a, a, a mon- I thought I saw someone actually it's hilarious. I saw people who were actually well-versed in Rene Girard's work compare uh, Dr. Fauci to Mother Teresa. <laughs> so, I mean, that shows you that it's not yeah, about an yeah. intellectual thing. You could get the intellectual stuff all day yeah. long, I guess. I don't even think they got that, but assuming yeah. they did and still totally missed the power of the, the mimetic spell of, of, of sacred institutions like government, uh, holy men and women. Totally. So that's what we're dealing with. This is the thing that we have to understand. We have not left religion. We never left religion. We're so, yes. we're so thoroughly in religion. And the totally. only way people can learn to, uh, you know, navigate these waters is to understand how religiously grounded all the institutions that manage their lives or try to are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's a great point. And just for anyone who, uh, who maybe is living out in the woods right now, Dr. Fauci is uh, I, he's like the chief health officer or something in the in the U.S. for the U.S. government, um, and he's been giving a lot. Of, he's been kind of the guy giving a lot of updates on the current situation in the U.S. But uh, just the same in um, in uh, Canada, we have um, our chief medical officer. Her name is uh, Dr. Teresa Lamb, and uh, she's just been unbelievably horrible on <laughs> this like from the very get-go uh when people were suggesting well maybe we should restrict uh 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 airplanes from coming from china uh back in january you know she was calling this racist and and uh and you're you're gonna start widespread discrimination and all that kind of stuff. And then, and she's been wrong on almost every, almost every step of the way or like way behind. And, uh, and our, but our media class and our state funded media propaganda machine, the CBC has done nothing but praise her. And it seems to me that like these people will almost kind of get off scot-free and the rest of us are going to suffer the consequences from their poor decision-making. Well, and if you look at the original office of a scapegoat king, you know, Gerard points out that uh, the scapegoats are where the office of the monarch originated from. The idea that right. you would you would lift up somebody and give them all the finest pleasures of the society, and then parade them around as a king before you sacrifice them to the gods. The gods in this case were actually just a psychological transference of the collective and their passion. 
that people yeah. imagine and kind of hallucinate that it's something outside of their own camp that's telling them that sacrifice must be done to avert their wrath. In reality, it's the wrath of the crowd that's yes. trying to be averted, but the crowd doesn't want to see what the crowd really is doing. And so they project their guilt. They project their anger and wrath and troubles into the sky to justify that, that transcendent feeling they feel when they're all united as one against a uh, villain or a evil person who's destroyed their society like Donald Trump. Right. Of course. Yeah. That's what a lot of like millions of people who hate Donald Trump just said, yes, absolutely destroy him. Right. They yeah, don't even, yeah. and, they, and they, and they think they're secular. They think they went <laughs> to college education and they think that they're somehow beyond a primitive society right. that listens to the gods demanding <laughs> sacrifice. But regardless, and then, and then it's so silly that they think that if you say that, that Trump or, China or whoever is a scapegoat. Therefore, that means that you like those people. Like, oh, right, I, right. I, I'm a big advocate of the Communist Party if I say that they're your scapegoat. Or I'm a big advocate of Trump if I say, yeah, Trump's your scapegoat. You know, like they, yeah. there's this massive mimetic um, desire for uh, unity and transcendence uh, on the back of someone else. Yes. And the way you scapegoat is to not know that you have a scapegoat. It's to believe that they truly are deserving of all judgment, wrath, and condemnation and hate. And that right. if you could expunge them from society, punish them, destroy them, take them down a notch, humiliate them, uh, imprison them, expel them, whatever, then you're going to create uh, a, a release and a peace and a unity that will, will pass all understanding and that's the that's the thing that human beings are hungering for in times of crisis or unknown uh, threats that come about. Yeah, and do you think that like, uh, and like you just said, I think that's a good point. Is the unknown is uh, people are very very scared. They don't information is coming at them at a thousand miles per hour, and uh, there's always conflicting information as well as well as and this goes this goes back to even just before current events like uh it, it seems like in any war situation there is sort of this um deluge of information and then uh, and then uh we sort of go to the experts and say well the experts say this and then you're, you're the the mud, the waters are sort of really muddied. The the well is poisoned, right? So you kind of almost have to just rely on what the experts or let's call them the priestly cast, <laughs> right. what they what they are telling us. And do you think that um, that there is sort of a dynamic here where people are taking advantage of uh, the misinformation or the wrong information, and they're sort of using that as um, kind of uh, a way to take power or to grab hold of power? Well, they don't know what they're doing. There's someone in society that told us that too, right? 2000 years ago. Yeah. So they don't know what they're doing. Um, so they, they have the, there's a relationship. There's something I've been writing about uh, recently is the idea that there's a relationship between trust the experts and then the hidden violence that goes about. That's a continuum. They're connected. That, that, that idea, that trope of trust the institutional experts, no matter what they say, just, just cling to their every word. 
And then that faith that people are supposed to have for those folks, that has this double side to it. The other side of the coin is they get that faith and that trust for the experts because there's a hidden coercion that's sacrificially keeping folks down who just who 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 violate that sacred power of the experts. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, so, I think I think I'm getting what you're saying. Go ahead. So here's I'm going to try to give you an example of it. So so you have uh, like the uh, the experts of the FDA and uh, Dr. Fauci's group and all this stuff, they'll say, uh, you know, we need a vaccine. We don't, you know, when Trump said hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin could be game changers that doctors need to look into because other doctors were using these two things and apparently getting pretty good results around the country, I mean, around the world. Right. And so, and still apparently are, right? And so, he said, do that. And they, and that was a violation of the sacred order of things. Right. Because the, because, the, the experts didn't give them permission to do that. Right. He, he, so he's the, he's the chief priest of the ship of the state, but his role is not to step out and be the medicine man. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's supposed to wait for the medicine man to come do their incantation and their ritual <laughs> magic of fancy, uh, confirmation of all the different uh, procedures of the bureaucracy having tested these drugs and then they come out with a drug or a solution that's obviously patented right yeah, of course yeah. it's got to be patented <laughs> yeah <laughs> their magical intellectual property right that they invoke which allows them to make obscene profits for their crony friends and obscene job security and expansion for their bureaucracies that have to help subsidize or finance these 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 so-called solutions so they hate the idea it's a total taboo for the high chief, Trump, the head of this sacred state, to say, uh, actually, no, these generic antibiotic drugs that are FDA cleared for safe, th those might work. They're like, what are, you what are you doing? What are you doing? You're ruining the magic of statecraft, okay? Yeah, yeah. You're not supposed to say that. You're off script. That's a generic, okay? We don't want generics. Right, right. That generics are yesterday's news. That's why they're generics. You're not supposed to solve new problems that completely paralyze the world economy with things that cost a penny to make. You can't right. do that. Yeah. Doxycycline costs five to ten cents a capsule. That's a uh, that's an antibiotic that I think and other people think could be helpful for preventative or treatment. The other one, azithromycin, that costs like eighteen cents a capsule. Uh, and then, isn't it funny though, Jordan, just uh, kind of a deviation, isn't it funny that the people who are for free markets, we're the ones told that we're all about profit, but we're the ones actually promoting things that cost 10 cents or 5 cents. Right, and then yeah. the idiots who say they're love, not hate people, those are the guys that want massive profit margin stacked, massive profit margins yeah, for their totally. patented garbage drugs, right? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it amazing? It is it's amazing. It's just upside down. <laughs> the people who are for freedom, we're the ones trying to get the power of the people, the power of the poor. It's these right. dolts that <laughs> yeah. worship the sacred violence of the state that want everybody sitting like ducks. By the yeah. way, not getting sunshine, which is integral to any basic understanding of the immune system, not yeah. getting <laughs> fresh air, which is another vital thing for being humans, just sitting in the house and eating seven to 11 servings of bagels a day, <laughs> according to the stupid, fake pseudoscience 
of the USDA and their nutrition food pyramid. Okay. Oh yeah. So they yeah. want to stuck eating seven to eleven grains a day, no sunshine hardly. You know, you get arrested if you play frisbee in the park. Wait a second. I thought those parks were for us. I thought those public servants just managed the people's parks, so yeah. that you know. But then you get arrested if this guy in Colorado or whatever was playing uh, frisbee or t-ball with his little family. Yeah. Gets arrested, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, this is the stupidity. I mean, it, it takes a, a willing suspension of disbelief like you're watching a movie, which yeah. is what this is all about, you know? You have to willingly suspend your disbelief to say, oh, these public servants, they really care about us. <laughs> they, you know, the parks, those are the people's parks. Yeah, yeah. They're arrested for playing t-ball. Based on what? Based on the experts' particular theory that we can avoid more deaths by flattening the curve, even though there, that is a highly contested theory in academics. It's definitely it's dubious. Yeah. Theory. yeah. The idea that flattening the curve would actually cause less deaths. Some people, like, uh, what was that guy, Dr. Witowski, from, he's a, retired from Rockefeller University. He's an okay. epidemiologist. And he suggests that, no, actually flattening the curve is going to be more likely to exacerbate multiple second waves of this virus, potentially. It may actually cause more elderly folks to die from this disease than would otherwise. Yeah. So that's a hotly contested thing. But what the experts who have the monopoly power of the state, they say, no, we've picked a decision. We've picked a theory. And we're going to sacred sacred use sacred violence of the state to arrest and handcuff folks who play t-ball in the park. That's supposed to be their park. They paid for it. That's right. what the stupid myth of the state is. That's, oh, that's the people's park. That's the people's roads. Yeah, yeah. That's everybody's <laughs> until there's a, a novel theory yeah, about yeah. a novel virus. Yeah. That the state needs to say, that's it. We've decided. And we're going to use violence if you resist our decree from on high. But anyways, I want to just connect this idea of the expert. I mean, I'm kind of doing it here now, but the experts and the underclass that feed them. The underclass are the people playing Frisbee, the people who, who can't start their business, have to shut their business down because of, of the state picking a controversial theory about how to stop the, the exacerbation of deaths for this virus. They pick the theory. You know, we have to flatten the curve. And I'm not saying whether that theory is the right one or not. All I'm sure. saying is... They've chosen to side with a particular theory that just so happens to be more conducive for folks that want to have trillion-dollar handouts to their friends. That's, yeah. nice. That's a nice side. But they choose that theory, and then they say, the experts have decided you must stay inside with force applied if you don't. So, no, so now church is not an essential service, and, uh, you know, uh, walking a park or walking a lake is not allowed. You can get arrested or cited for that. Uh, you can't, you know, run your business in certain, certain certain states and cities. So there's a total dissolution of anything that was your God you ever heard of, totally wiped off uh, because they feel that a one-size-fits-all approach, which is based on a contested theory about how to mitigate deaths in a pandemic, is the sacred way to go about. And what happens is, so you get, so you get underclass people being coercively subjugated because of the experts and their sacred faith. 
the, the sacred faith that people place in them. Faith means trust. Yeah. Pistis, that's the Greek in the biblical text. Faith is trust, like a marriage trust, fidelity. How many millions of people have a fidelity, a trust to the so-called monopoly experts when they don't know? They may be gifted in some areas, sure. but the idea that they could plan out 330 million people's reaction to a virus. Yeah. yeah. Not even, by the way, talk about sunshine, fresh air, and limiting your carbohydrate consumption. Yeah. Yeah, just doing things that are good for your like your immune system, you know, things like like really simple. But yeah, yeah, and it, it is amazing to me because um, our government, well, my government in spe- in particular, has been just taking the WHO's word on everything, and they were repeating the the honestly, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if it was gross incompetence or just straight up lies from the World Health Organization when they were saying just a few months ago that uh, this virus cannot be transmitted human to human. And <laughs> that, like that was just, it was just a total falsehood. And our governments didn't do their due diligence. They didn't uh, check into those claims themselves. They just t- took what the World Health Organization said and and repeated them. And now we're in this situation and uh <laughs> and and now uh we have to obey them and their dictates for whatever they say and even just on uh, the like uh, there's a small town by my city um where there was a couple of teenagers they were in a car together and they were parked and they got a a $1200 ticket each of them <laughs> and uh, and it's like the the police don't know if they if these kids like live together, uh, what their relationship is, and, and w- like we can all like with a rational mind say like they probably know each other. It's it pro- the risk for them is extremely low um, for transmission, and they're probably not going around vulnerable people. They're just two friends hanging out, but. Uh, we have to go in and um, make an example of them for the rest of society. Now, thank- thankfully, their parents took this to the media and the, the police department out there rescinded the, the tickets. <laughs> uh, but it, it is like, it is this weird thing. And in Hamilton as well, in Ontario, they've been handing out tickets, $750 fines to homeless people who aren't uh, social distancing. <laughs> you know, it like... How can anyone look at this and be okay with this? And I like I don't understand that, you know. And it, but it's a lot of it is this is the environment that's been created. There's this sort of mob rule that like we must do absolutely anything and everything to uh, reduce this this contagion, and doesn't matter what uh, what lengths we're going to go to, we have to do it. Uh, it doesn't matter. There's no cost-benefit analysis. It's just this one-size-fits-all approach to uh, keeping the contagion down. And it's all, it's all, it's funny because R- R- Gerard in Violence and the Sacred talks about violence itself as a contagion. You know, so while we're dealing with a literal virus, we're also we're also having to deal with a, a contagion of violence where we think we can just stomp on homeless people and harmless kids you know what yeah, i mean and violently and violently make everybody stay in their 
uh, apartment or house. Yeah, absolutely. And then millions of them, apparently, according to the media, are howling out at the windows every night like little puppies of yeah. the state. Yeah, yeah. In New York City, they're howling, you know, oh, you know, because they, they, this is what we've done. This is the grandeur of modern, of the modern sensibility and all of its luster and glory is this howling out at the window because mommy and daddy state tells me I have to stay inside and get no sunshine or, you know, get no proper nutrition, eat seven to 11 grains of, of uh, uh, <laughs> servings of grains a day. Total nonsense stupidity. I'm yeah, telling yeah. you, we're going to look back real fast. I mean, I, I'm already looking at it and millions of people are looking, but the rest of the world and history is going to judge this time very, very harshly. Yeah, for sure. At the stupidity of no concern for what the immune system is actually designed to, to do and how it's designed to function. Yeah. And the, you know, the fact that uh, they've looked at the acidic content, the level of acid in humans versus in, in ancient humans and Neanderthals compared to hyenas from that time. And our acid level in our stomach is higher. It's more acidic than hyenas. Now, okay. we know what hyenas eat. It's meat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why would we have a higher acidic level in our stomachs than even hyenas if not for the fact that we're supposed to be eating primarily animals? For sure. Uh, oh, my goodness. The only reason why that's controversial is because you're Christianized and you don't know it. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, yeah. the only reason why you're, you're sensitive to, the, to me even saying, oh, my goodness, how taboo <laughs> that humans were designed to eat primarily animals is because the haunting of the cross has so pricked our conscience for the concern of those who we deem to be vulnerable. Right. to exploitation and oppression, including animals that humans were designed to eat that were so sensitive to that that it's even taboo for me to point out the obvious truth that humans, although they're omnivore, are actually designed to eat primarily animals and fatty animals, right. nose to tail, if, if possible, um, not a massive amount of plants and seed oils and nuts and that kind of garbage. Right. That we could eat plants, but those plants are a secondary survival food that we eat when we don't have access to a herd of mastodons or what have you. Now, for me to say that sounds off topic, but it's not. Because what I'm trying to show folks and what I do on my radio program every day in my articles is to point out that there's all this truth, there's all this knowledge right under our noses that we are not able to see clearly because we don't know how much of what we think is standard consensus is actually mimetic sacred nonsense right right so much of the institutions that we have that say this is the consensus on nutrition this is the consensus on physics this is how an atom works this is how nuclear fusion is to be done this is how uh you know um anything immunity is to be is to be thought about all of these different fields right. are always think about it in economics right is austrian school economics ever taught in any of the major economic institutions that pick you know the the top scholars of the priestly class for economics hell no 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 right yeah. neither you know there's no monetary theorists that have an understanding of sound money and and the idea of polylegal centric 
polycentric uh, legal uh, framework for mediating uh, the best way to handle, you know, uh, money as a medium of exchange in a competing, you know, floating market of currencies. They don't have any concept of that. That's not even a, an option. In the same token, there's that's the same way it is in, in, in institutions that we may not be as familiar with, like sure. physics or yeah. or nutrition or medicine. And so, right. what I'm trying to get at is that we are in a dark ages, folk, because we think that so much of the of the we we trust in this enlightenment mythology that the experts have just thought about everything so better than we have and that they and their infinite wisdom can map out one size fits all policies and medicines and so on and all we have to do is just sit like little worker bees in our little field that we've picked our little specialist knowledge don't question things don't deviate only get your knowledge from TED Talks and McDonald's <laughs> crap like that and just be happy with the crumbs that the, the institutional sacred experts give you from on high. And that's just not the way reality is. Right. And, and, and the only way you can understand that, in my opinion, is to understand the personhood revolution of Jesus. So, Hey, folks, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to the podcast. Also, hit subscribe. You can also help out the show and help me make more great content by supporting me on Patreon. Patreon.com, just search The Peaceful Way. Reach out to me on social media, The Peaceful Way Podcast, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. Send me a message. Let me know how you're doing. All right. Thanks for your time. Enjoy the rest of my interview with David Gornoski. Mythology. You know, we talk about fake news, Jordan. Yeah. Mythology is fake news, right? right? It's the same thing. Yeah. So what we call fake news today is just is just is just a cheap vestige of mythology. Yeah. Mythology is a cover up for violence. It's a cover up for a hierarchical structure of reality that ancient communities used to maintain order and a sense of peace through hidden sacrificial violence. Might makes right. Right. And and so fake news is just a modern vestige of it that because Christianity has disrupted that monopoly vision of reality, that winner's rights history reality, because Christianity is breaking that up into pieces, now we call it fake news where people can actually debate the news. They can actually debate the truth that the news says rather than just accept one perspective like mythology did in history. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I think, uh, I think that's a very good point. Um, and with, it is interesting to see it, to watch how like modern technology is sort of um, almost, like you say, decentralizing things and demythifying things because now you have competing voices uh, that actually have some that can disrupt a little bit of the of the sort of accepted wisdom of the of the sages on high, <laughs> you know. So uh, yeah, I, and I, I'm wondering what your thoughts about. Um, so again, I'm I speak a lot from like a Canadian perspective, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on uh, uh, like what's interesting is I've seen a lot of articles. Uh, coming out of our Canadian media trying to, again, do this thing 
saying that uh, Russian bots and Russia is spreading disinformation about about uh, the coronavirus. And perhaps they are. Maybe maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. I don't know. And there's been like to me, like the real culprit is kind of the the Chinese government who's put us all in this kind of mess that we're in uh, with their with their covering up and their um, uh, just straight up lies about what was happening in China with the virus. But I'm seeing a lot more of this, and this is sort of a hangover from the whole Russia Gate conspiracy that was uh, going on, particularly almost up until January when Trump's impeachment was finally uh, finished. And uh, uh, I'm just wondering like what your thoughts are, like how can you just maybe extrapolate on how the media creates scapegoats out of uh, sort of nation states like that and how they use it. Um, Go ahead. But you see that on the right too. The right is, you know, I don't know. We don't know all the details about what happened with the communist China origins of this virus. Right. So fair enough. um, So I guess my question would be, would any other country act differently than that? Maybe not much different if it was the shoes were in the other, you know, on the other foot. Right. Yeah. So who knows? Right. I mean, Maybe they'd be a little bit different, maybe a little worse, a little better. I don't know. But, yeah. you know, my my judgment is I'm skeptical of any government that asserts a monopoly control on information and reality and uses violence to have its way. I, I'm very skeptical of anything. I think any person who's a Christian should be skeptical of all governments who pretend to be monopoly bearers of reality. You know, so so that's the first thing, I think. So whether it's communist China or America or whatever government we're dealing with, be very, very skeptical of their narrative of how things happened, right? For sure. Um, but, but even with that being said, um, I, I do see like kind of a pivot of my government to try and pin the blame or pin the blame of like misinformation or coronavirus conspiracy theories and whatnot onto um, onto like the Russian government and Canada. Well, Russia is a Russia is a better fit, right? Because think about it from the from the there's two camps, right? Well, that's, there's more than that, but let's make it simple. There's the leftist camp, which is the victimist camp, uh, and then there's the right wing camp, which both of them worship. Uh, and I don't mean this in a pejorative. But both of them hold in awe the power of monopoly violence from the state. And so I would actually say libertarianism does too in a different way. But I would – it's just a little more complicated to explain that. But for now, I would say that uh, the left versus the right is interesting. The left is like the more – think of this again. I'm going to interpret everything through a religious framework. So the left is like the fundamentalist wing of – the 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 worship of the state, right? Yeah, yeah. They're the kind of big, ironic. They're the heart, yeah, they're the brimst- fire and brimstone <laughs> yeah. lovers of the state. Now the right, they're pretty close to it. They're very close, and sometimes they're just as uh, fundamentalists. But there's a little bit more intuitive skepticism that runs just a little bit in the right that makes them a little bit more likely to be the ones to say, wait a second, Dr. Fauci, I don't know if you speak for everybody, or wait a second, maybe we don't need a one-size-fits-all national shutdown in America. Maybe it should be more local or state, right? So they have a skepticism, and I think part of that is the right's, uh, you know, upbringing and 
in the notion of uh, original sin, right? This idea that humans are fallen gives them a little bit more wisdom. Sure. Sometimes, not all, yeah. you know, they go to war for, um, you know, one stupid incident and they want to go off to war and then they lose their, their minds. Yeah. So they have some yeah. problems there. Uh, and obviously they have a skepticism. Anytime there's a police action that goes wrong, they, they typically knee jerk say, Oh no, 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 no. You just should have obeyed better. Right. That's right, why you're right. better. <laughs> yeah. So they have a problem really big there, but, but by and large in the right, there's a healthier conversation about skepticism towards state power. Uh, and so, but the interesting thing, you know, with the left is they need a scapegoat too. They need a boogeyman. So who's who's better than Russia? Russia is primarily considered Caucasian, right? Um, they're considered to be primarily Christian, right? Uh, they're considered to be ex-lovers of communism. I mean, goodness, that's a that's a <laughs> hell of a heresy right there alone. I mean, they're yeah. they're like a ex-lover to the left. The left used to love Russia as their heroes. I mean, the New York Times used to write yeah. glowing articles in the 70s in their, in their newspaper talking about how wonderful the Soviet Union's view of women was and their view of, pre, of universal pre-K and we need to be more like them. And then Russia let, you know, supposedly got rid of communism and now the left is like a spurned ex girlfriend. They're just like, I can't believe you walked out on me. I hate you now, right? Mm. And to make yeah, I matters thought, worse, I never embrace. thought of it in that way. <laughs> yeah, that's it was, so that's why it. they they're jealous. They're obsessed with Russia because, in their mind, Russia has done the greatest slap in the face they could. They rejected their uh, fake Christianity of communism, and they right. returned to an older form of Christianity called Russian Orthodox faith. Right. Right. What a horrible insult! Yeah. That's <laughs> like the left. The left. That's like. Wait a second! You left me for that girl? How dare you? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you left me for that? I'm yeah. way better than that. And so they're outraged at Russia, and they're obsessed with Russia because of that. And so you you combine that with the fact that Russia has a reputation of being politically incorrect uh, about some social issues, right? Sure. Um, yeah. Gender roles, you know, things like that. You've got a situation where. They make a perfect out of Hollywood, and incidentally, they're always evil villains in Hollywood. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you make a they. I guess they didn't used to be before they lost their love affair with communism. Um, but now, but now you've got a classic, perfect leftist scapegoat group, where you can say, "Hey, they're Christian. They're primarily." You know, apparent they're not white, but you know, Caucasian. Yeah. They look Caucasian. That's the image people have. But Russia has all kinds of races. So that's nonsense. But but you know, the the image of a Russian is a white person, uh, and you know, and so in the victimist narrative, where people are supposed to be guilty of what they look like, their skin color, uh, that's a classic target for scapegoating. Uh, their their hatred of com their alleged rejection of communism. Their Christian social morals. No wonder, no wonder those are the boogeymen that are touted by the uh, fundamentalist uh, media. So the left is the fundamentalist worshipers of the state. The right is right there close to them. But the right is more what I call classic scapegoating, right? Okay, explain so, that. So classic scapegoating is where you, you are more okay with singling out someone who looks like a minority or an other. Right. So China, right? Totally. America does not have Chinese country. So the right's a little bit more tempted to say, oh, yeah, I have no problem. Yeah, it's, 
It's China. China's the problem. Yeah. See what I mean? Yeah. I'm not saying that's racially motivated or not. I'm just saying that's they're 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 more okay with violating that taboo of the fundamentalist victimist ideology of the left. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And definitely here, here, go ahead. Yeah, well here here's why I call the left fundamentalists. Because Christianity has so infected our consciousness in the West that in order for the state to keep sacrificing people, it has absorbed the language and the feelings of Christianity to justify its continuation of collective violence, right? Yeah. So the left is the fundamentalist hardcore of that. And so they're more in tune with the Christian concern for victims than the right is. For sure. So they're more sensitive to the fact that, no, 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 no. We're not going to say this is a Chinese virus because that might demonize the minority Chinese community in America. Right. They're concerned with uh, singling out people who are a minority in America or the West that might, if we say that, that might lead them to be isolated, marginalized, humiliated, excluded, uh, hurt, and so forth. Now, yeah. there's a legitimate yeah. thing there, right? For I sure. mean, there yeah. is a legitimate thing there that doesn't need to be totally uh, dismissed out of hand. But but what do they do in turn, right? They go and villainize Russia. <laughs> and right. they don't even yeah, see yeah. the difference. They can't yeah. see it. I We see it. We're Christians. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> if, yeah. you're, if you're thinking like a Christian, you can see it obvious, yeah. right? Yeah. You don't scapegoat, you don't scapegoat the, the group that the media says you can scapegoat and you don't scapegoat the group that the media says you can't scapegoat. You don't scapegoat any group. That's what right. Christians do. We don't blame other people for our problems. We can recognize where wrongdoing is, right? And that's, that's something that has to be clear here. You know, to, to say the Chinese government screwed up is not scapegoating in and of itself, okay? Sure. So we got to be clear about that. Yeah. But what we're saying is, Along those lines, there can be a tendency to to uh, to take a legitimate criticism of, say, the Chinese government, and then turn it more into a scapegoating feeling, right? Right. Where you're saying stop eating bats and mocking people because they have that reputation. Right. That's that's kind of a there's a little bit of scapegoating energy that can be there a little bit. Definitely, I think that's true, and I think even. Um, uh, yeah, like you said, like uh, you very well explained how Russia has a scapegoat of the left, but and it's not just now that China has been a scapegoat of really Trump since he announced his um, his running for president. Like he it, he was very much saying that he was going to go after China and what he saw as unfair trade deals, and obviously he sort of ended the TPP and uh, and has kind of been in this trade war with China for the last couple of years. And you, you do see a lot of um, conservatives just taking that line, taking that hook, line, and sinker, you know, like, yeah, we have unfair trade with China, so we need to punish them and sort of almost sacrifice them, if you will. And then, and it, it, can't, it can't possibly be that I just want me personally wants to make a voluntary arrangement with somebody in China, with another individual right. in China, and buy a product from them for agreed upon price. It can't just be that. It has to be, I'm part of, I'm this amalgamated in this like nationalistic whole 
just like that person in China is. And then, <clears throat> and then, and then, uh, yeah, like for some reason that the conversation always goes there and we can't like see things just on like a personal and individual level. Does that, but again, sense? as Christians, here's the exciting thing that Christians can do. We can come in the midst of this. And if we have the imitation of Jesus in our mindset, we can navigate the nonsense cut through the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth, and find the truth, which is going to be paradoxical. So it's true that our some of our trade deals have been rigged as managed trade deals. Ron right. Paul was good about saying this back in 2007 in the primaries of Republican Party and, and continuing into his 2012 run. Managed trade deals are rigged free trade. So there is a legitimate criticism in NAFTA and so forth and all these different trade deals. And it's true that certain uh, crony corporations and organizations can rig the trade arrangements to, and not just the trade arrangements, but also the regulatory environment in certain countries to right. find cheaper labor that they can exploit, that their little guys who are competing against them can't. So, so we can acknowledge that, right? Yeah. But here's where the interesting thing comes. Okay, so what's the answer? What do you do about it? Now, there's a growing movement on the right to say they don't know they're doing this, but if you can't beat them, join them. So <laughs> I just find it interesting that some people on the right in their fervor against China are willing to have authoritarian state-managed capitalism even worse than we have now. Right, yeah. So that's what Gerard would call mimetic rivalry. You become obsessed with those that you want to be like. So, so my question is, if we're here uh, in terms of prosperity and freedom and potential with what we have in our society and China's there, why would we be stupid to imitate someone who wants to be like us? That's mimetic rivalry. That's obsession with the other. Yeah, right, right. right. So the more you desire to beat them, the more you become them. And, we, and sameness breeds more sameness and more right. rivalry and more hatred. So if the conservative movement would even begin to broach proper anthropology, they'd realize that if they want to beat China, they need to do the opposite of what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> they need to yeah. stop calling for uh, more and more tariffs and more and more regulations to protect the American work. We need to get rid of regulations. We need to get rid of licensing laws and occupational licensing. We need to get rid of subsidies. We need to get rid of all this hidden inflationary tax, which destroys people's savings and their purchasing power. We need to get rid of uh, regulations is the biggest one. You know, yeah. we need to get, it's so difficult to start a business. Yeah. And there's so many rules that you have to put in place if you want to have employees. And these rules are not meant to help the, the little guy. They're actually built by the bad guys, the big mega corporations. They're the ones that put those little rules in. To, to Again, watch how they do it. It's the same method. Because we're so haunted by Christianity, all regulations that we're supposed to have that China doesn't, those regulations we have, they were sold to us because of a concern for victims, as Christianity would give us. Right. Right? Yeah. So the, the state and its regulatory power, they, they absorb that Christian concern for victims. And I'm not saying they're doing it in a malicious way. They may really truly believe they're helping victims. But then it always turns out to be more power for the crony class behind the scenes 
to use that concern for victims to make it more difficult for small businesses to create creative destruction. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and you know how do you know how expensive it is to start an airline business? Do you know how expensive it is to start a travel company? Yeah, you know how many totally. regulations you have to pay for and mandated insurance and this thing and that thing you have to do? Yeah. And then we got to bail out the travel industry now. Why don't we just allow people to actually have a free market in travel and maybe yeah. some geniuses like Elon Musk or even better, the real Tesla, people like those folks that are out there could come in and create the most amazing disruptive not necessarily disruptive, but creative and beautiful and efficient and amazing yeah. travel companies and, and airline companies and, uh, you know, things that we can't even think of right now. But we're not allowed to let them happen because regulations, subsidies, and so forth are designed in a way that never allow the market to work. Right. So, so the answer, when we're stuck in this thing where the globalist regulatory complex of managed trade deals has rigged the situation for the worker. The answer, you're stuck in the middle between some market forces and mostly government rigging, right? So what's the answer? Do you go this way and go more government regulations, more tariffs to try to balance out the problem? Or do you go this way and go the other way and say, wait, let's reverse the car. Let's get out of the mud pit. We're stuck in a mud pit, you know, we're going to yeah. reverse the car out of it to uh, return to freedom to empower the worker and the family here in America or everywhere. Yeah, for sure. And I think what a lot of people, there's sort of like a misconception too when we allow businesses to fail, uh, especially these huge businesses. It's not like all their assets and uh, their property just disappears and ceases to exist. It's somebody, some entrepreneur uh, or a group of entrepreneurs who are smart and savvy, they put together a group and buy up all those assets and run the company more efficiently and they save for a rainy day and whatnot. Uh, and they, they plan for not having bailouts, right? But unfortunately, we have... Uh, we have this system where every people are buying their own stock and they're not uh, they're not planning for a rainy day and uh, all of a sudden when uh, things get hard then they need the government it's not really the government it's the taxpayer to bail them out so yeah it, I yeah it, it's a it's a completely unfair system and I, and I think almost anybody who just looks at it uh, logically doesn't matter what your political stripe is you can agree that this system is is very unjust to uh the the common man yeah and, and there's so much confusion like there's a again a, a growing critique on the right that has been there for decades yeah. but it's becoming more in fashion now to criticize free market capitalism as the thing that took the right off the rails <laughs> right yeah so dumb <laughs> and, and it's like no Materialism is a problem. Consumerism sure. is a problem. That's not freedom, my friends. Okay? Yeah. You know, you can have consumerism and materialism whether you have freedom or no freedom in the market. So let's not be stupid here. But what people do is on the right particularly, they do it on the left, but this new catchy thing on the right is we have to criticize, uh, uh, you know, market freedom ideology because that yeah. has led us to this greed that has led us to destruction of the small town and that has led us to the destruction of the family. And it's like, no, that, first of all, we don't have much of a free market. We have a very rigged 
corporatist market where the state and all of its levels from federal to state to local and then the multinational global organizations do everything they can to rig the market forces to fit their preferred interests and their preferred friends. That's what we have always had for a long, long time to various degrees. Yeah. So it's not freedom's fault that we have a society that has abandoned the concern for the family and a society that has abandoned its concern for restraint when it comes to appetite for consumption. That's not freedom's fault. In fact, if you're going to make a case, it's actually much more closer to a state-managed society that the so-called conservatives think is the solution. Yeah. Because it's a state-managed society that has goosed the economy to the point where now you can't just save your money with sound money and have it appreciate over time in the bank. Now you have to gamble your savings in the stock market, in a casino economy, to have something like a nest egg when you retire. Now we don't have families taking care of grandma and grandpa. Now we have a social security that has detached that generational connection. Now we have Medicare, which sickens grandma and grandpa on drugs that are not proven to be effective for many of the chronic illnesses that they have, which are a result of single-payer nutrition that has told us all to eat tons and tons of margarine instead of butter and grains instead of meat, right? Yeah. yeah so very, these fools, yeah. They, they don't even know the, the beginning of it, right? They, these guys make me the, the, <laughs> the most irritated, okay? Because these guys say, oh, you know, we're for the family. Okay, that's great. I hope you are. Then let's get to the real reality of it. Right. Why'd you let the state teach grandma to eat margarine? That's why she can't breathe. Yeah, yeah. Where, where's your family conserve, conservative uh, family concern? Come on, you know? Yeah. And, it, and it, if, if you, you know, you're blaming this on people who for, are for free markets, it has nothing to do with free markets. Yeah. Then they say, oh, well, for, you know, capitalism makes us all greedy consumerists. Wait a second. I thought that was Keynesianism. Keynesianism, which is state-managed markets, is the one that says we need to rig the economy to get us to consume all the time. Right, right. Yeah, it's not free markets. Yeah, and Keynesianism, it's a good point to bring up because uh, a lot of people sort of confuse Keynesianism with the more classical understanding of what capitalism is. I don't even personally love the word capitalism. It it was a word coined by Marx and, and... he was sort of using it in a particular way. I just like free market enterprise. Uh, yeah, but, that's what I use too. But I like yeah. voluntary, you know, exchange. Voluntary. Totally, totally, yeah. This is not, to me, this is a matter between violence and nonviolence. And I challenge any right. conservative who wants to critique the free market right. to answer the question that Jesus says. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. What's mercy or sacrifice? Right. What's how about when Jesus says, do not resist evil with violence? Ooh, yeah. uh-oh. What, yeah. Whoa. Is that, is that Ayn Rand telling you to do that? Who cares yeah. about Ayn Rand? <laughs> I'm not paying attention to Ayn Rand. I've never read Ayn Rand's books. I don't care about Ayn Rand. I don't care one way or the other. Okay? Right. Jesus says, do not resist evil with violence. Absolutely. Okay? So that means if you love your family and you love promoting a community, in society where the public good is maintained for families, 
for grandma, for grandpa, for great, great grandpa, and so on. If that's what your priority is, then I would do something really novel and stop disobeying Jesus when he says, don't resist evil with violence. Right. If you think having consumerism is evil, then don't employ collective violence to solve it. Right. If you think materialism is evil, then do not resist it with violence. If you think anti-family cultural values are evil, then do not resist that evil with violence. Absolutely. That's my message to the conservatives that are just so bedazzled <laughs> in their desire to fight against China that they're increasingly looking a lot more like the communist Chinese crony capitalists over there. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. And I think, um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And like I was saying before, you know, and you alluded to this too, is Keynesianism encourages consumerism. It's it's not free market voluntary exchange. It's it's a Keynesian system that keeps our uh, interest rates artificially low, and then people take bad take on bad loans that they shouldn't be, and they take on malinvestment and bad risk. So you you and get then there's, into, and, go and ahead. There's all this credit that 16 year olds can have as have a credit card. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> That's not excuse me, Mister Conservatives that think it's really cool. Yeah. To be against, it's really edgy to be against markets. Okay. I know that's really cute <laughs> yeah. right now. Excuse me. How does a 16 year old get a credit in a sound money system? So why yeah. are you blaming people who are trying to teach the right ethics? Right. Because see, here, here's another thing that's, that's interesting for the little conservatives that are all against markets, really edgy. You don't even know what sound money is. The Bible says there should be just weights and measures. How is it a just weight and measure of money to have an economy where a fiat currency can be debased for those who save their money and those on fixed incomes, but those who get the money first, those who have their hands closest to D.C. can use that money that's printed and created in the credit system, and they can use it before it's trickled down into the rest of the economy and caused prices to increase. Right. How is that a just weight and measure? Yeah, so how yeah. in the world can you blame that on freedom when we're the ones telling you we shouldn't have that wicked system? And then if we didn't have that wicked system, 16-year-olds would not have credit card offers in the mail. <laughs> I mean, if they did, it would be very rare. It'd be based on a lot of savings in the economy. This, yeah. is a, this is a Christian principle that you just can't, you can't just out of nothing make stuff. Yeah. Okay? You have to save. And then when you save, that discipline allows you to do credit cards for 16-year-olds. But we don't have enough savings in the economy to support a real situation where people can have a credit card to buy flat screen TVs while working a minimum wage job. We don't have that. Right. There's no reality for that. Yeah. And we're on an illusion. We're on an illusion based on the state. And it's a power to destroy the economy through the debasement of morality. And, and the Federal Reserve's creation of money has also contributed to the destruction of the family because it destroys the incentive to save. It, it destroys the incentive for long-term preference, right? It's yeah. always, it's got a high time preference. We got to spin, spin, spin now because the money's going to lose its value over time. So there, so, so all this concern about the, uh, the markets destroying families is actually laid completely at the feet of first and foremost fallen human beings. Right. Yeah. But primarily exacerbated because of the presence of central banks, regulations, government rigged trade deals 
and all of the phony income uh, taxes and occupational licensing and regulations that make it so difficult for our markets to function as the creator intended. For sure. And uh, yeah, those are all good things. And just as we start to land this plane here, um, I just want to ask you how, like, how do we as like uh, individuals imitate Jesus in a culture that is so antichrist in, in a way? And I'm not even, you don't even necessarily have to be a Christian to imitate Jesus. I think you can, you can follow, uh, it seems like Gerard kind of made a lot of room for that. Like you can follow the example of Jesus and, you know, imitate him. Uh, but how do you think that we, as individuals, because there's only so much we can do about the monopoly of the state and their monopoly on violence. But what do we do as individuals going forward? Well, I would say that, you know, yeah, I think it's true that to be an imitator of Jesus is to be a Christian. Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who are in the church who may not be a Christian and technically, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're not imitating Jesus, most of it. And, and I would say that there's no status where, okay, now you're an imitator of Jesus, right? It's a process. Right. Um, Maya Angelou used to say when people would tell her, oh, I'm a Christian, she'd say, already? You know? And yeah, I think yeah. that's an important way to think about it, right? So sure. it's a process of wanting to imitate the... Um, desires modeled for us by Jesus. But here's the funny thing. Oftentimes when you try to imitate Jesus in the true, almost literal way, people will accuse you of saying, well, you're not Jesus. How can you do that? Yeah. Or they'll say, you know, you have a Christ complex or messianic complex or something. Right. It's like, well, maybe, I mean, obviously there's a way that's bad, but maybe we need that to be done a little bit more. You know, maybe, sure. maybe, Maybe the point of the story where they're in the boat and it's storming and Jesus appears walking on the water and Peter says, you know, and they're worshiping Jesus and all. And, uh, but Jesus doesn't leave him in the boat. He says, Peter, get out of the boat, do what I'm doing. Be me, be me. Right. Yeah. And, and the church today doesn't want to do that. It wants to worship Jesus from the safety of the boat. Right. So it wants to say, thank you, Jesus, for attacking all those religious hypocrites from your time, but we're not going to do that in our time. Thank you, Jesus, for challenging the evil of the empire through nonviolence, through the power, the proactive Aikido-like power of your nonviolent <laughs> witness. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for doing that in your time, but we're not going to do that here in our time for Canada or right. America. No, no, no. Thank you. So we stay in the boat instead of getting out and being like Jesus and walking on water too. Yeah. So that, I think that's important because I would say that the Western Christian, whether a liberal or conservative variation, tends to be more taught to think like Descartes. I think blank, therefore I am Christian, right? Right. I think blank, like let's say, I think the Roman Catholic Church is the universal thing. Therefore, I am Christian. I think it's immersion baptism. Therefore, I am Christian. I think John Calvin was right. Therefore, I am Christian. I think John Wesley was right. Therefore, I am Christian, right? Right. I think blah, 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 on yeah. and on and on. Rather, it's more like Shakespeare. Or another way of putting it, Shakespeare was more like 
the Bible. To be or not to be. It's an imitation, right? Yeah. It's a it's a whole body thing. It's not a I think Cartesian model. It's a it's an imitation that is what makes us Christian. So I think that's the first thing that people need to have in mind. And then the second thing I would say is you're absolutely right, Jordan. We shouldn't be really focused on politics. You know, I would recommend that people use their talents and stack. You know, Scott Adams says it nicely. You don't have to be a genius at everything, but you can have certain talents that you can learn or you have naturally and stack them together in creative assortment so that you can solve problems in a particular area very well, right? Yeah. So I would say this. Let me give you an example to think about. To be a Christian is to do something like uh, what Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman were trying to do. Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman in 1989 had discovered what they called cold fusion back there, right? This idea was that perhaps you could create nuclear energy in a laboratory environment. Perhaps you could have a tabletop device that could produce nuclear energy uh, that could change the game. Now, they made a few mistakes. Uh, they didn't know exactly what they had stumbled onto. They had a difficult time having other people replicate their work. But because they dared to call it nuclear fusion, they stepped onto the boundaries. They were chemists, but on the pecking order of the sacrificial hierarchy of priestly knowledge, physics outrank the chemists, right? The physicists yeah. outrank the chemists on the hierarchy. And when they stepped in as chemists and said, hey, we discovered a physics phenomenon called nuclear fusion, what happened? I don't know. They stepped in, <laughs> they stepped in it big. To yeah, this day, yeah. uh, Stanley Pons fled to, he left America as an American. Oh, and now okay. he lives in France in oh, hiding. Wow. wow. No one's ever talked to him since because he got so railroaded by the media in 1989 when they made their announcement. And they had some legitimate problems with their stuff, but they yeah. did. I think they stumbled onto something real. Yeah. And I think a lot of it's not fusion, right? And I would say it's not fusion. It's not cold. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I'm being a little flippant with the cold. It, it's room temperature. It's a yeah. type of nuclear reaction that other people have replicated since. But it's never received the media attention because it violated what? It violated the priestly caste hierarchy that, wait a second, if it's going to be fusion, we should see gamma ray, we should see all these different attributes that our classic understanding of fusion says is supposed to be. Yeah. But what I want you to understand is that classical understanding of how fusion is to be may be wrong. Right. And it may be hard for us to accept that because we don't know how religiously faithful we actually are to the institutions that we have been deemed indisputable, sacred, authoritative, and consensus, right? Right. So when you think like a Christian, think about that issue as one example of how to be a Christian, which is the courage to challenge the crowd and say, hey, maybe they did know that there was a nuclear, there was a way to create nuclear type energy at low temperatures in a laboratory setting. Yeah. Maybe that's possible, even though it violates the standard model of the atom as we know it. Maybe, maybe that's a place to get energy too cheap to meter so that billions of families that live in poverty that can't make ends meet because of all the costs of a, scarce, a scarcity-based energy system, maybe they could be lifted up if I use my mind and my courage 
to investigate things in the natural world that previously have received sacred violence when you test them out. Does that make sense? Jesus was sacrificially excluded because he violated the taboos of his institutions. And just the same, you will be shunned, you will be ostracized, like Martin Fleischman and Stanley Pons, when you violate the sacred taboos of the institutions that dominate our society today. You may not be physically sacrificed in a crucifixion like Jesus, but you will be socially ostracized, destroyed, vilified as a kook, a nut, a freak, everything in the book to destroy you because that's how mimetic contagion works. And it's up to people who want to be like Jesus to stare down that crowd, not to reciprocate with the same pettiness they give to us, but to serve our neighbor and to solve things right under our noses in the natural world and in the social world. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to all of that. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, David, for uh, joining me. You're, you're officially my first guest. Uh, and uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. And hopefully we'll talk again sometime. Very good. Thanks for having me.